The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan. Today's episode is on managing anxiety and negative thought patterns. People with anxiety disorders are at a much greater risk of developing a substance use disorder. One third to almost one half of people who have an anxiety disorder may go on to develop a substance use disorder. They don't tend to do as well in drug and alcohol treatment either. Because they have a much higher rate of drug and alcohol relapse, it is super important to treat both the substance use disorder and the anxiety disorder at the same time. I'm proud to introduce two wonderful guests today. The first guest is a young man who is here to share how he overcame a lifetime of negative thinking, self-loathing, and severe alcohol use disorder. Our second guest is Dr. Lauren Wadsworth, a clinical psychologist with an expertise in anxiety disorders, who will share research-supported strategies to quiet the critical voice in your head. Let me introduce Merrick first. Merrick is a 27-year-old who recently celebrated two years of sobriety from alcohol use disorder on March 9, 2021. He works in education and is a personal fitness trainer on the side. Merrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Dr. Alkin. Thanks for having me. So, Merrick, would you mind telling us a little bit about what happened up until the point that you developed an alcohol problem. Tell us a little bit about your experience with anxiety and negative thinking. Tell us a little bit about your drinking, your recovery from alcohol use disorder, and what tools uh, recovery has given you to manage that negative self-talk. Yeah, definitely. I I mean, you know, I kind of chuckled a little bit at the beginning when you introduced me and you said, you know, you had a severe alcohol use disorder because I think that's putting it lightly. Um, You know, even from early on, like as far back, as I can remember, I just had these negative thoughts, you know, thoughts of inadequacy, worries, anxiety. And, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know what they were early on, or I guess I wasn't super, I wasn't aware of what they were, how they affect me. It was just kind of how I lived my life. And, you know, I, I, I grew up in like a, a very, a pretty wealthy part of town, you know, I had a mom, dad, brother, and sister, I have a twin sister and a brother who's a year older than me. So we're all very close in age. So we all kind of came up with very similar upbringing, similar experiences, but I was the one who kind of went left and they both went right. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. developed alcoholism or I guess, you know, the way I believe it, I was born with alcoholism and um, they, they didn't have the same struggles or don't have the same struggles that I have. So you know, from early on, no, no one ever told me I wasn't good enough. No one ever, ever, you know, they never reinforced any of the thoughts that were constantly in my head. And I have this picture from when I was 
probably nine or eight, nine, ten years old of like me at a birthday party and it was a pool party. It's still sitting in my room. So I look at it almost every day. And, you know, we, me and my buddies all got our shirts off with our suits on or at the pool. And I'm, I'm sitting there with my arms crossed over my stomach. And I remember taking that picture when I was around nine years old thinking, you know, I, I had a belly and I was looking at all my friends and they were they were skinny and, and not normal mm. thoughts for a nine year old to have. But pretty self-conscious. Yeah, big time, big time self-conscious. And, and you know, I spent all my time comparing myself to other people. So like, you know, my sister, again, I, a twin sister. So, you know, I, she'd get a 98 on a test, but I would get a 94. And so I wasn't good. I wasn't as smart as my sister or, you know, I, I would, I was playing soccer. And so my brother would score all the goals and I would, you know, play here and there, maybe catch an assist every now and then but I wasn't scoring the goals. So I wasn't as good as my brother. So like everything that I did, I was never looking inward. I was constantly looking outward and comparing myself. And, you know, from the outside in, like, you know, objectively, I had nothing to, to feel inadequate about. I had a lot of friends. I was, I never got in trouble. I got great grades. I I, I was, you know, teachers like me, my friends, parents liked me. Like I had all these things going for me, but for whatever reason, and I could never pinpoint why I just never felt good enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then, you know, high, that, that, that was kind of my story, you know, my whole life really as far back as I can remember. But then high school comes along and, you know, I never felt like I fit in. I was constantly, you know, wearing different masks, trying to be a chameleon with different groups of people. Okay, what, what should I say here? What should I wear? You know, never really understanding who I was. And then all of a sudden the parties came along and I remember, t- you know, drinking for the first time and, you know, for me, I took that first drink and I didn't get drunk the first time, but I had like, you know, three or four shots of vodka. And I remember just like this, this weight kind of coming up like over me and, and this weight coming off of me. And I was, I was like, Oh, this is, this is how I connect with people now. Like, this is my identity. This is what I'm going to use to, to get in with people. And, you know, all these thoughts kind of just went away and, like, I was like, this is it. Like I found it. And I don't think I realized that at the time, but you know, in retrospect, that's, that's the way I felt. And, you know, my story is one of like progression, right. Where I I started, you know, once a week drinking, you know, and then all of a sudden it was blackouts and twice a week. And I had just didn't have an off switch from the beginning. And I didn't think it was I didn't think it was abnormal because I was surrounding myself with people who drank like I did. But I think the difference between myself and my buddies was on, you know, Friday and Saturday, we'd go out. And then by Monday, I was just thinking about how are we going to get the booze? Who's, mm-hmm. Whose house are we going to party at this weekend? You know, and I was constantly obsessing over that, but I wasn't telling anybody any of this. And I was keeping everything else together. So I didn't have any consequences. I got good grades. I was an athlete. I had a lot of friends, was staying out of trouble and all that. So, you know, I, I, I actually had a great time early on with alcohol and it really did make me feel connected with people. And when I was drinking, the anxiety would go away. But, you know, when I, when I woke up the next day and I would think about, oh, what did I say last night? What did I do last night? It was constant blackouts. Like every time I wasn't drunk was when the anxiety would run my life Mm. and I had no tools to cope with that because I was keeping everything else in check. I didn't really raise any red flags necessarily. So people weren't really noticing 
all this stuff was going on internal and I wasn't raising my hand and saying, Hey, I need help. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Hey, you know, I wasn't doing any of that because everything else on the surface looked great. So I said, that's fine. I just got to keep keeping it together. Um, college comes, comes and goes and, you know, typical progression, you know, drinking once a week, twice a week, three times, four times, five times every day type of thing all the way through senior year. And, um, you know, when I was 21, it was when things really kind of hit the fan. Um, my whole identity was I surrounded with alcohol and other drugs. And I said, you know, this is how, again, I'm going to connect with people. It's how I made friends. And I had no other ambition. I had no other sense of self. I had no identity. And once college was over, I realized that the real world kind of hits and I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was kind of just passively, you know, drinking my way through life. And um, when I was 21 was when I, when I think I realized internally that I have a problem. I could not stop drinking. Um, it became a daily thing. I was drinking and driving. Um, but I, I didn't know how to stop. And I think that was the first inkling of, okay, something's up here. And all that kind of came to a head, the daily drinking and driving in the summer of 2015, um, which is six years ago now, almost, you know, close to the day, I think, which is kind of crazy. But um, I ended up drinking and driving, crashing my car, um, really bad single car crash. My alcohol, blood alcohol levels through the roof. Um, and I got arrested for a DWI. And that's when everything kind of, you know, cats out of the bag, you know, no hiding it anymore. And, um, you know, I, that, that's what introduced me into the world of AA and treatment and all that stuff. But I, I still wasn't ready at that point. Um, I didn't want to quit drinking. I didn't want to stop. You know, I, I spent the night in jail and, you know, I got put on probation and I had to do the 30 days on a work bus picking up trash, mm. you know, on the side of the road for 10 weekends straight. And um, I was, I remember looking around on that bus thinking like, I don't belong here. Like, this is not me, you know? And, um, and I stayed clean. I don't say sober because I think clean and sober are two different things, but I stayed clean for about nine months during mm -hmm. that stretch. And I was doing that all essentially for the judge. Um, I went to outpatient for the first time uh, <laughs> that year in 2015. I got through that without touching alcohol or any other drugs. And I convinced myself that, you know, I can, I can control this. And so I, I move out, I get my own place with my brother and it only takes about a month or two before everything hits the fan again. And mm -hmm. that stretch from 21 to 25 was like a blur to me. I don't really recall a lot of what happened. Um, I know all I know is that I was on probation for the majority of it. Um, I violated probation by drinking um, as opposed to stopping drinking to avoid consequences. I, after I got caught, I bought a breathalyzer because I thought, okay, if I just use this breathalyzer, then I won't have to get in my car, which has a blow and go intoxilock device. And that way I won't get in trouble. So like the not drinking was never on the table for me. Um, in that time, 21 to 25, I was in and out of outpatient rehab. 
um, treatments and groups. Like, I think it was like three or four times. I don't even recall how many times it was. Mm-hmm. I was in and out of AA for, you know, five, six, seven times. Every time I went back in was when I got caught and I wanted to get people off my back. And it, it was everything I did in that time was to get to, for other people to leave me alone. Essentially, I was never doing it for myself. I didn't want to do it for myself. Um, the consequences physically started becoming less and less and the emotional consequences of that emotional rock bottom that people talk about became greater and greater. So here I was, I was, like I said, I was brought up at this, you know, nice kid, good grades, good athlete, a lot of friends. And all of a sudden here I am breaking the law, going to jail, spending multiple nights in jail, um, drinking when I'm not supposed to be drinking, lying to people, you know, living this secret life. And all of a sudden that combined with, you know, if you took a lie detector to me every single morning and I said, I want to stop drinking, I truly want to stop. I would have passed that test every time. I believe I just could. Yeah, I just could not stop. So that, you know, I would beat myself up every day um, because I looked at my actions as negative or bad or whatever it was. And I knew deep down that I didn't want to do that. So that kind of perpetuated the negative thoughts and the anxiety and the, and the, the negative feelings towards myself. And it got to a point where I just wanted to kill myself. I just didn't really know how or have the guts to do it, essentially. And, so, and Merrick, what was the negative voice in your head saying at that moment in time? Oh, I mean, you name it, like, I like not good enough like you don't deserve anything um you have nothing to live for you know you're a bad person you're a liar you're a cheat you know all this because all my actions said that it just wasn't like i couldn't i couldn't stop doing what i was doing no matter no matter what and i think that was the most difficult part that i just wanted at at some point at the, by the end of it at 25 i just wanted to end it all because i couldn't take it anymore just a lot of self-loathing Mm-hmm. Definitely. Very painful. Definitely. Yeah. And I, and you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have a family and support system around me that basically dragged me to a treatment center, a rehab, an inpatient rehab in Pennsylvania. I'm going to shout them out. It's called Karen Treatment Center because it, it's, they did so much for me in 30 days, like way more than I, than I could have anticipated. But I was fortunate enough to have a family who A, could afford it. a a nice facility like that, but B also basically dragged me in the car and, and, you know, (laughs) threw me into their, into their detox centers and staying here for 30 days. Cause I was never going to raise my hand and say, I need help. You know, I was never going to do that. I just know that for a fact that I was just willing to, my plan was to drink myself to death. Essentially, They, They saved your life by the intervention. Oh yeah. Yeah. By the third or fourth intervention, but you know, those 30 days were unbelievable for me. They helped, it, you know, I, I, I've developed really strong connections with a bunch of the guys there that I'm still in touch with to this day. Um, at that point too, after 30 days, I really thought I was going to be ready to come back home and, you know, okay, I'll be good after 30. And then they said, no, you should probably go to, to a sober living center, which I did in Westchester County. And I'm going to also shout them out. It's called release recovery. Um, and again, I, I, I'm fortunate that I had the means to go to a place like that because not a lot, of, not many people can afford um, the type of, of help that I got along the way. But 
they have a great foundation called the Release Recovery Foundation too. That you know, if if anyone wants to donate, um, they they help a lot of people who are less fortunate than I am get into treatment centers across the country. So it's they were unbelievable, and and it was the same type of deal with with them where I was in a house with a bunch of young guys who wanted most of them wanted to get sober. Um, and we just developed really strong bonds and strong relationships. And, you know, from that point, you know, I was in AA and, and I was being taught all these different tools, like meditate, pick up the phone. Um, I looked and saw I wasn't alone and I felt alone my entire life. Um, and so I think, you know, over time, these thoughts, haven't gone away and but i i just have more tools and willingness to be able to to deal with them but again like you know just last week i had like a borderline panic attack because of you know something that was going on so you know i think the difference is now i'm just more willing to to kind of pick up the phone and you know and i think it comes down to because i don't feel as alone as i did two and a half years ago so so that would you say that's the biggest tool that recovery has given you, Merrick, is the uh, ability to pick up the phone and, and ask for help? Yeah, that's definitely the big, like I would say it's the biggest one for me personally, just because I know how heavy that phone was three, four or five years ago where I was never, ever going to pick that thing up. And I was never going to let anyone in or be vulnerable or admit my struggles. And um, I think I'm much more willing to, admit where, where I'm struggling and not hold on to so much. I think, you know, there's meditating is another huge thing for me and exercise. Those are like the, that I find extra, I find exercise that kind of meditative for me. So I think that's why I I love it so much, but you know, if I stay in my head, you know, and, and that's where I get into trouble. So talking about it with other people and connecting with other people about these things, I think is the most helpful thing for me. Okay, so you talk to other people, and if you talk to somebody in recovery and you say, I'm never going to get a girlfriend, I'm going to be alone forever, I don't, I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable, life's never going to get any better, what would somebody, uh, you know, I keep screwing up, there's something wrong with me, what might somebody in recovery say to you that would be helpful to quiet that self-attack? I mean, I've had those conversations with many many of my buddies in, in AA and sponsors and things of that nature. But, you know, I, I think anytime they say, Oh yes, you will. Like, like, trust me. Like I thought the same thing when I was your age, like for me, none of that never helps me. Cause I'm right. constantly like, yeah, but you're not me. And, and that old pattern of thinking kind of comes back that defensive, like you don't know what I'm right. going through. Yeah, I yeah. think the most helpful thing that someone can do for me in that moment is kind of redirect me to like the moment, the day, the one day at a time thing, like, dude, chill out, you know, because all that, ang- the anxiety is, is talking about the past, you're talking about the future, it's anything but what's going on where my feet are. So like the question that I constantly get asked by, you know, this one guy in particular that um, in my network is like, where, where are your feet? You know, be where your feet are. Oh, and I love that. Yeah. And sometimes like, I know that, like I've, I've been in this program long enough where I know that, but I need somebody else to prompt me and I need somebody else to like kind of guide me there. So that's like, for me, the most helpful thing that they could do. That's super exciting. Well, I just, I really, really am so excited for you. You've put tons of effort into your recovery and you sound very peaceful and very happy. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and there's good days and bad days. Um, I think today you caught me on a good day. Uh, so, I, you know, I, like I said, I went golfing before this and I met one of my first, actually my first sponsor um, who helped me a lot. So that was, uh, that was a nice, nice way to start the day for me. But obviously there's days where I'm not as peaceful or I'm not as serene and as I am today. And I think the difference is, is like those days aren't as bad as they used to be. Like I know that I'll get through it. So. So you learned something that you never knew before. And that is that reaching out to somebody and sharing the noise in your head or your self doubt or your self attacks, you can actually get comfort from another human being. This is new, correct? Yeah, definitely. I, and I still want to keep like an arm's length from people. That's like my, kind of my nature. I like to kind of, be by myself, keep an arm's length, put a wall up. But like, that's brand new for me is like opening up and kind of letting people in a little bit more. So, Oh my God. Uh, so this is really brave. I mean, to, to take that risk and to be this vulnerable and it's paying off. This is wonderful. Maybe at this point in time, I should introduce uh, Dr. Wadsworth and hear some of her thoughts. So, Dr. Lauren Wadsworth is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of severe anxiety disorders, including OCD, social anxiety, and panic attacks in adults, children, and adolescents. She is the founder and the director of Genesee Valley Psychology, a clinic that provides evidence-based treatment to the Western New York area, specializing in OCD, trauma, DBT, and a newly launched racial trauma and healing center. Dr. Wadsworth is a clinical senior instructor in psychiatry at the University of Rochester Medical Center. She earned her undergraduate degree at Smith College, earned her master's and doctorate degree in clinical psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Dr. Wadsworth completed her pre-doctoral internship and postdoc fellowship at McLean Hospital, Harvard Medical School at the Behavioral Health Partial Program, the OCD Institute, and the College Mental Health Program. Dr. Wadsworth, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say thank you um, to Merrick for sharing your story. I think I'm hearing so many things that will make so many people feel less alone hearing you share them. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for being vulnerable in that way. Now, Dr. Wadsworth, do you see this kind of obsessive, critical self-talk, unrelenting self-attack and anxiety based in the past and the future in your clinical practice? Is it common? Oh, yeah. I think every single person that comes into our clinic has an onslaught of negative thoughts. Um, In some ways it's human, right? It's helpful for us to walk out in the street, see a bus coming and think the worst, oh my God, that bus could hit me and then feel a burst of anxiety and then use that to run out of the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also something I find really fascinating that we don't know how to, we haven't really evolved the ability to filter things out. And when anxiety disorders are present, that filter is is super loose. So something like going to a party or going to school or um, going to a job interview or going on a podcast can be as threatening as as being in a room with a tiger or a fire or seeing a bus coming. And when that anxiety signal goes off in the brain, it's an all or nothing thing. It's not something that we're like, I'm really anxious, but I'm not in danger. It feels like danger. The signal is danger, regardless of what the trigger is. So it's human and it's extremely common. And 
Um, I think we all experience it to a degree. It's adaptive, but when it becomes really severe and big, it can be extremely debilitating. I like your distinction. So the person's fire alarm internally is ringing, even though this is not a life-threatening situation like a podcast interview. Exactly. Right, or a job interview. There's no, like, there aren't two options in the human brain yet. If you sit with them for the first time, what kind of psychoeducation would you give them? That would be one piece of it, right? Yeah. I mean, this is my favorite topic. So I'm going to try to just answer with one thing and not, you know, 20 minutes of things. But (laughs) I think that if I really boiled it down, the thing would be that what is happening is totally natural and human and helpful and adaptive, but it's just overgeneralized. So we don't need, your brain isn't broken. It's totally fine. Um, But what is likely happening is that your actions are based on your feelings and it's just happening really quickly. And so the work of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is to basically notice the cycle. I'm in a situation, it triggers a thought, that triggers a feeling, and that triggers an action. Um, So I'm logging into the podcast. I'm thinking, oh, no, what if my mind goes blank and I don't know what to say? I feel Mm -hmm. anxious. And then maybe I say, oh, Dr. Halligan, I don't know, I'm feeling kind of sick. Can we do this another day? And I escape, right? So if we just act on our feelings, when that signal goes off, we're going to escape or freeze um, or avoid in some way. So what I would basically tell the patient is, or any person, is it's not about like removing that from happening. We can't stop that cycle from starting, but we can pause before action and then choose a different path. So it's really hard to do. Mindfulness is a huge part of this. So I'm sure Merrick knows everything I'm saying, (laughs) but noticing, oh, I had a negative automatic thought. I had a negative thought come up. I've heard that one before. That's a signal to pause and see what's going on. I'm feeling anxious. I want to escape. If you can start to catch it sooner and sooner, you have a better chance of changing the behavior that comes after. And the behavior piece is where it affects your life. Oh, that's super helpful. So what you're saying is these are automatic cycles, right? That we you know, might be uh, caught up in since adolescence. So you're saying just be conscious, step outside, be an observer, and just stop the flow, stop in your tracks and say, how can I do something different? I don't have to avoid the podcast. I don't have to hide in the house. I don't have to cancel the job interview, cancel the date. I don't have to stay home from work or school. Because don't have to take the drink. You don't right? have to take the drink. Mm. Oh, I don't okay. have to use the drink to change that emotion. The emotion will go away on its own. So slow down the action. Yep. Because if I avoid, it just reinforces that exactly. whole vicious cycle. See, I left and I felt better. See, I drank and I felt better. See, I drank and I felt less alone. I felt less ashamed. That worked. So okay. if it works, we learn to do it. So of course, so it's also very adaptive to, in some ways, if we think about it, just very basic life or death, to avoid, to drink, because it changes a very dangerous feeling. It goes away. So we learn to do it more often. Ah, Okay. So you believe in challenging negative thoughts and you teach people how to do that. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. What are some of your most favorite 
most effective CBT strategies to help people manage negative thinking? Yeah, so I think the biggest the biggest one, which I'm sure Merrick can relate to just based on a couple of things he said is, is being able to notice it happening. So the mindfulness piece is massive. That's like the most powerful thing. If you can catch that cycle faster and faster, that's big. But sometimes, or very often, it's hard to catch it. So some of the things that I teach people that helps them catch it sooner is part of the cognitive restructuring process. So the first step of cognitive um, restructuring is to notice that you're having negative automatic thoughts. Again, that's hard to do, but we have these things called thinking traps, which are basically categories of negative thoughts Hmm. that it's easy. So it can be easier to see that you're doing it. So for example, all or nothing thinking, I suck. Um, I am a total loser. That's an extreme statement. So you're like, huh, a complete loser all the time. That might be a negative automatic thought or um, emotional reasoning. This situation is so awkward, meaning I feel awkward. So now I'm labeling the whole situation as awkward. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I'm using a feeling to label a situation. I don't actually know how anyone else feels in here. This is going to be a total failure, fortune telling. So am I telling the future? Okay, that thought was about the future. I don't know the future. So if you can learn some of these thinking traps, fortune telling, all or nothing thinking, emotional reasoning, labeling, mind reading, should statements, I should be better at this, jumping to conclusions, then you can kind of catch the thinking. And it's just a little easier to catch it that way because when a negative automatic thought comes in, I suck, it's stated like a fact. Right. So we, and, and I believe it then. Yeah, we believe it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to, in that moment, be like, well, do I know I suck? But if we can say, oh, that's all or nothing and labeling, then it's like, okay, then then it takes some credibility away from it because I know that's a thinking trap. So okay. if that makes sense, it's kind of like going backwards to catch it um, mm-hmm. by saying, oh, there's a trap there. Now, can that give me a reason to pause and investigate? Give me an example of fortune telling. So fortune telling would be like, um, I'm going to mess up this podcast. Um, Dr. Halligan's going to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, and I'm just going to pause and, and freeze and look super weird. And you don't have any idea what's going to happen on the podcast. So you're, you're just predicting some negative outcome, right? And believing it. Or I'm going to go to the party and everyone's going to be drinking and I'm going to feel so incredibly awkward that I won't be able to have a conversation Gotcha. because I'm not drinking, you know. Gotcha. Okay. So you would say, just label it. That's the first step. Mindfully step back as a detached observer and label it. Wow. I'm fortune telling Mm -hmm. again. Yes. I'm fortune telling. Okay. And what about mind reading? Mind reading would be like, um, right now, this is a prime, prime territory for it because I can't see Merrick's face, right? <laughs> so that would be, so I could mind read you, Dr. Halligan, and be like, okay, she just took a note. She probably thinks that um, that thing I said is something she needs to correct because she <laughs> wants to make sure her listeners aren't um, misguided. I just wrote, um, never ask this guest on my show again. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's I funny. That. And without seeing Merrick, okay, now I've lost a huge cue, which as you can imagine, is really hard for people that are blind. Um, I can't read what Merrick's 
how Merrick's reacting to me. So I might be thinking, oh, Merrick thinks that I'm totally mischaracterizing what it's like to have a substance abuse problem. And that's um, hurting him. And I can't see that. Right. So I might mind read Merrick. Yeah, it's it's funny. I'm sitting over here like smiling and nodding my head too. And I'm like, wait, Lauren, Lauren can't see me right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, check it out. How's she, how's she doing, Merrick? I think she's nailing it. I mean, for if, you know, there's a saying called like, I, I guess, Lauren, I, I kind of want to ask you, like, there's a saying in AA, like progress, not perfection. And I think that's the one, one of the biggest, like, usually I don't like the little sayings in AA. They're, they tend to be pretty corny, but that one for me is one that I've like held on to. And mm-hmm. I think like, you know, when you were speaking about like, you know, the, the uh, mind reading and like fortune telling and, and all that, like that's, I, I've reflected on like my experiences where like I will go into situations like this, I'm not going to do it perfectly. So like, I, I know I'm just going to fail. And so mm-hmm. it was like very much that black and white thinking that you were talking about all or nothing. So I relate like a hundred percent to, to what you're saying. It's, yeah, it's, Progress, not perfection. What is perfectionism, Dr. Wadsworth? Because Merrick was talking about that even as a young boy. Oh, my stomach's fatter than the other boys at the age of nine. Or, you know, I, it could be, you know, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not thin enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not handsome enough. My muscles aren't big enough, right? I only got a 3.9 GPA. These are how do you attack perfectionism? Is that a, a negative thinking trap? Yeah, it's not one of the traps per se, but it's um, but it could be categorized into them. But perfectionism is something that I think we don't talk about enough in the field of psychology because perfectionism is usually the cause for um, procrastination. Right? I don't feel ready to start this assignment. Um, I don't feel like I, I should just clean the house first and then I'll feel ready. Um, perfectionism can get in the way of social, can cause social anxiety, but in a nutshell, what it is, is, is basically saying, I don't, I think it's triggered by a feeling. So I feel anxious Mm -hmm. about this situation. What would make me feel better? Well, if I, if I looked perfect, if I was thin and fit and I went to the party, I'd feel more confident that would help me. So it's sort of this trick of like, oh, if only these things were in place, then I'd be able to have what I want and do what I want and be comfortable. Um, it, I think, again, it's a natural thing because as humans, we're kind of sussing out who's the strongest in the room, who's the tallest, who's the most attractive, who's the most successful. And it creates this narrative that we have to be one of the best to be good enough. And that just leads to this whole shame spiral that can be really debilitating um, and really um, make any action hard. We, similar to your phrase, Merrick, we, I often say with people, perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, um, one of my favorite things to, to kind of do with patients is to say, okay, all these behaviors, what are you trying to avoid? So. Merrick is drinking to not feel alone and to feel more connected to people. In the end, is that what happened? Or did you actually feel more isolated from people? Um, And to play out that sometimes aiming for one thing, if it's anxiety driven or mood driven, causes the opposite thing to happen. So with perfectionism, I can't go, um, if we're aiming for perfect, it's like, 
I'm going to do everything I can to be perfect before I present myself to the world, but then we might never present ourselves to the world. So we end up not ever getting anything versus getting going, not feeling perfect, and then getting something from the world. That's super helpful. Now, Merrick found help belonging to a group, a sense of community. Is there an option to do that at your center for people suffering from anxiety disorders? Do you run group therapy at all? Do they run that there? We do tons of groups. I love groups. I think um, we do groups where people do exposures of facing their fears with in front of other people. So everyone's facing different fears, but they're cheering each other on. Um, And we also have a support group um, where people, I call it the hive mind because I, it's like, I can tell them the evidence-based strategies, but they've got the lived experience and together we can probably enhance these skills and make them better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really see it as them doing the work and I'm just the timekeeper. Um, but something that really stood out to me about Merrick's story is a piece that um, one of my colleagues, Dr. August at the clinic who specializes in substance um, treatment, often highlights as something that's different with negative automatic thoughts and substance, where there's so much stigma around struggling with alcohol or having a substance disease or however you want to categorize it, there's judgment from the world about whose fault that is, right? So more so than many sicknesses or disorders of the mind, um, substance is often blamed, the person is often blamed for it. And that's something that's a stigma that's like deeply entrenched in our culture. So when Merrick said that the negative automatic thoughts he was having when he was drinking were things like, I'm not good enough, or I can't do this, or I suck. I don't remember exactly what you said, Merrick. They sounded like thoughts that were triggered by that stigma of, well, if I just tried hard enough, I'd be able to stop drinking when it's not really Merrick's fault, right? It's, but society has set it up that stigma to to make Merrick feel shame about that behavior when that, so that just triggers the anxiety even more. And makes I think it you're really right. It's really hard to get out of that. Right. I think people see it sometimes as a moral failing. Don't you Merrick? Yeah. Like I, like I'm, I think that's spot on. Like, like I mentioned, you know, if you put a lie detector test to me every morning, I said, I'm not yeah. going to drink today. I would pass that. You know, I would have passed that for five years straight and you know, I, couldn't stop. And I think you're using the word shame, which I think is really appropriate because we had a conversation when I was in Karen in the treatment, um, in, in patient rehab. And we talked about like shame versus guilt and, you know, shame was like internalizing all of the, the negative actions that you did or the, or the areas in which you messed up. Like I, I internalized all that. Whereas now I'm at a place where I look back on that and I can feel guilt, but I'm not necessarily identifying with all that stuff. And so I think, you know, that it struck me when you use that because you use that word previously too. So I think that's, that's really fitting. Yeah. We call that internalized stigma when Mm. someone is talking to themselves, like the culture or the society talks about that experience. So that can happen with racism Mm -hmm. that can happen with homophobia, you know, so with homophobia, for example, someone that's gay might think, oh, it would be better or easier if I was just straight, my family Mm -hmm. would be happier, Mm -hmm. I would have a better life. So when we internalize those messages, it, it doesn't do us any good. So 
with cognitive restructuring, when there's stigma at play, it's actually really important to do something a little bit different. And instead of just using disputing questions and what, what evidence do you have, Merrick, that you suck because you can't stop drinking, um, we actually say, wait, let's pause. Before we think this is a you problem, <laughs> let's name what thoughts are due to society and let's put those that pain where it belongs on society. Society's responsible for that pain. It's not your responsibility. It's not something that you cause or, or have to, um, that we, we can't talk our way through it. We have to just say that is a really awful thing about the world right now and it's not okay, but you don't have to hold that. Doesn't well, have that's to live that's lovely. So you say, give back that shame, take that internalized stigma and put it back on society where it belongs. That's really lovely. Um, oh. Dr. Wadsworth, what uh, can you tell us about um, acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy is a really cool, um, sort of thought of as a third wave treatment. It's also in the CBT realm, um, but basically it's a mix of mindfulness um, and strategies to help the person figure out their values, what's important to them, and commit to behavioral change. Hmm. So for example, um, Merrick might say, I'm having a panic attack. All I want to do is shut down and not talk to anyone. I'm going to pick up the heavy phone and call John um, in service of recovery because that's a value of mine. So uh-huh. it's instead of, I should call John. Why am I not calling John? I'm so stupid for not calling John. It's saying, I don't want to call him. I would like to call him because it's my value to approach recovery when I'm struggling. Oh, I like that. There's so you you write out a plan and it you attach it to the person's value. Exactly. Oh, that and sounds also, very cool. It also helps with things you can't change. Mm-hmm. So Merrick mentioned identifying as being born with, um, I don't remember exactly the words, but substance use issues. Um, and so that's something Merrick can't change. It's not just going to go away. You can't wish it away. So with acceptance and commitment therapy, we can just work to work on accepting that it's not, doesn't mean you're okay with it. doesn't mean you want it, but it means that you're not going to say, why me? This isn't fair. Cause that's a whole added level of suffering that we don't actually need to have. And well, do you have any comment on acceptance in recovery, uh, Merrick and your own personal journey? Yeah, I, I, that's spot on. I think I, I spent a lot of time, you know, wondering why me, poor me, you know, what's going on. And, once I was able, like I accepted I was in, I guess I didn't accept it. I identified I was an alcoholic long before I accepted it. And then when I accepted it, it was when I, you know, they, they say I stopped living in the problem. And I started living in the solution. So then it was like all this wasted energy is how I looked at it going towards the question why it, you know, i shifted that energy was able to put it into like, okay, what now, you know, what can I do about it? And that's when things, that's when everything changed for me. Yeah, there's a great um, there's a great little phrase from um, acceptance and commitment therapy that summarizes that, which is pain. So having a substance use disorder plus non acceptance, why me, equals suffering. Ah. Pain plus acceptance equals pain. Mm. So you still have the pain, but you don't have what they call the second arrow of why me. This isn't fair. Mm. That's. Beautiful. That's spot on too. Oh, let me ask you this. Um, Merrick said something really wise, and that is, uh, where are your feet? 
Uh, don't don't be stuck in the past. Don't be stuck in the future. Look at where your feet are today. How important, Dr. Wadsworth, is mindfulness to keep the person in the moment? And how, if somebody says, how do I learn mindfulness? How do you teach it? I think it's extremely important. I often say, like, come to this present moment because it's most likely way less threatening than the past or the future. <laughs> And it's the only thing that's happening right now. So why be anywhere else? Um, How to teach it? I think the number one thing I'd want people to know is that mindfulness does not mean no thoughts and Zen. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness just means being in your feet and feeling whatever is happening now, seeing whatever is happening now. You can just start with trying when you're eating breakfast to really feel what it feels like to eat breakfast and be in that moment. Um, Peace with Every Step is a great book to just incorporate it into daily life. And there are tons of YouTube videos that you can just Google to to do mindfulness um, practice. But the mindfulwaythroughanxietybook.com has a great series of eight um, exercises that kind of build in duration and intensity. So that's give that to me one more time. The Mindful Way Through Anxiety. Um, mindfulwaythroughanxietybook.com. Wonderful. And then peace with every step. Yep. Peace with every step. Wonderful. So if I'm in the present moment, I'm safe right now. Exactly. Nothing nothing bad is happening. There's no fire. Okay. I really like that. Last last question before we stop. How does somebody access a CBT trained therapist if they have an anxiety disorder? Because just regular talk therapy might not be helpful, right? Yeah, so there are a bunch of great resources, um, many great programs that Merrick mentioned, but um, if people are trying to find an uh, evidence-based treatment provider, they can go to abct.org, so Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies.org, just abct.org, and there's a Find a Therapist tool that you can look for someone in your area. So that's an organization that prides itself on evidence-based techniques. And if you have OCD, there's a separate website, um, IOCDF, internationalocdfoundation.org, uh, that also has a find a therapist tool. You don't want to, you want to be careful about going on psychology today and just searching for CBT because a lot of people just check off every box. Right. You want to make sure that they're affiliated with an organization. That is super helpful. This has been this has been a wonderful show. Very rarely do I get to talk to somebody about their own personal story with, I don't know, the benefit of having an expert, a trained expert with the expertise of, of, of research-supported therapy. How has she done, uh, Merrick? Lauren is great. I, I think it was I think it was super cool to kind of get that that element of it too. You know, yep. so I I really appreciate everything you had to say, Lauren. Yeah, Thank you. and thanks and, again for sharing your story, Merrick. It sounds like you've done a huge amount of work. A lifetime of work in just a couple of years. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. A lot of uh, people I know would be very envious of you, Merrick, because you're so young and you already have coping skills. You have great relationships. Uh, you've got a very realistic uh, view of uh, life and uh, an accepting, peaceful, serene attitude. So you're way ahead of the game, actually. And um, Merrick, any parting words to anyone sick and suffering with an active anxiety disorder, depression, substance use problem with suicidal thoughts? I think, you know, the last thing I would want to say is that there's hope. 
you know, and, and you're not alone and reach out because people, people are very willing and, and want to help. So, you know, there's hope. There's hope. You can't do it alone. And there's people that are willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, Merrick and Dr. Lauren Wadsworth, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been really enlightening and really fun. Thank so, you so much for having yeah, us. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. Um, this is uh, Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.